start this evening's service by blessing in the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. Greetings of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Everything that you've given us, all of the blessings 
every circumstances in life and offer it up to you as an offering of praise and worship because we know that as we keep our eyes on you, it keeps us in the right place where the joy of the Lord can be our strength, where your peace encompasses our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus and allows us to act like Jesus. And so we bless your name tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship our God. He is a great God. And one of the verses tonight that's going to be in our text is Paul says, I glory in the cross alone. It's the cross that I glory in, and it's because of the cross that I'm crucified to the world and that I could live the way that Christ wants me to live. And so I encourage you to be thinking about that as we worship through song. Um, I invite you to stand, but also if you want to sit and sing as well, just encourage you to worship in the manner that you see fit this evening. those walls that we called sin and shame they were like prisons that we couldn't escape but he came and he died and he rose those walls are rubble now remember those giants we called death and grave that stood in our way but he came and he died and he rose those giants are dead now this is our God this is who he is he loves us this is our God this is what he does he saves us he bore the cross that heaven and earth proclaim this is our God King Jesus remember that fear that took our breath away faith so weak that we could barely pray but he heard every word every whisper those altars in the wilderness tell the story of his faithfulness never once did he fail and he never will this is our God this is who he is he loves us this is our God this is what he does He did, he did, who paid for all of 
to the Lord. Speak your praise, how we brought you through another day, another week. Worship you. Praise the name of the Lord our God. 
Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We'll be finishing Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia tonight, picking up uh, next week as Paul would write to the church of Ephesus. And tonight we're going to be taking a look at Paul's final instructions to the churches in this region. Keep in mind, Paul was the founding pastor within these churches that was there Lystra and Derby and all of those those churches that were within that region. And the challenge that they were running against was the fact that there was a lot of uh, Judaizers. There were Jews that were coming in with this legalism saying you have to be circumcised, obey the law, and do these, do these other things in order to be a real Christian within these things. And so Paul has been working about working with them to really talk about the freedom. And we last left him, and he was bringing about the freedom that we have as a believer. And we do. We have great freedoms as, as Christians. And the challenge is, Christ has made us free, but for some odd reason, we want to be a people that fall back into legalism. We want to fall back into rules and regulations and do things a certain way. And as if we could add to our salvation, can we add to our salvation? Can we make it any better? No, we can't. We can't do anything else that's going to make God love us that much more. And so the danger that was threatening the churches in this region of Galatia was legalism. And falling back into this legalism and these people that were trying to uh, entrap them again, 
and put them under bondage. And God hasn't called us to live that way. He didn't call them to live that way. In fact, he, he came in bringing that freedom to us. But the other side of the coin is this. Your Christian freedom, your freedom from, from legalism does not give you a license to sin, does it? You can't say, well, I can do all things. Well, you could, but what if that thing that you feel the freedom to do puts you back into some kind of slavery? Whether it's, you know, a lifestyle or, or, or a habit or some of these other things within this. And so we do have freedoms, but those freedoms are all based on what Jesus has done at the cross to set us free. And to set us free from the bondage of, of sin and the legalism and so forth. And so within this, Paul is warning these believers not to return to legalism and to live in the blessing. And you think about legalism. Legalism is a taskmaster that never will be satisfied. Because when is it good enough? When, when, is, when, when do you really achieve perfection in obeying a law or something that is there? It's always going to be a guilt within this. The other part of this is legalism not only is a, a wicked taskmaster that forces itself upon you, but... It can be a stumbling block for others. Think about it. You might be able to adhere to some, some position of righteousness, self-righteousness. But what happens when you impose that on somebody else that struggles with that? It trips them up. And, and then there's guilt. It's like, well, I can, I can never be as good a Christian as Carrie. Well, no, you can't. Because... I'm just a dirty, rotten scumbag, and so are you. And that's okay, because God set us free. We, we get into this thing where we start measuring ourselves against other people. And that can be a form of legalism, can it? Where we start having these standards and these hierarchies and all these things. And, and, and God hasn't called us to live that way. That we are all sinners that are saved by grace, are we not? We're given God's grace Within this, and so we need to avoid this. And one of the warnings that he says to them, to the Galatians, he says, "Who's caused you to stumble? Because the legalists were coming in and they were tripping them up with all the rules within that." And so he's challenging them, and he concludes with chapter twenty-five, the last verse of twenty-six, and basically he says, "Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another." Well, that's where that comes in. Don't let us become boastful, challenging one another or envying one another. When you get to this place where you start saying, well, you need to be a better Christian and be like me, or you're not as good a Christian because you're not like so-and-so or, or like this rule or like that rule, then you're stumbling or you're challenging or you create spiritual envy. I'll never measure up. And then this condemnation comes in. And... The challenge then for the one that's doing the stumbling, that's stumbling others, they become this, this spiritually conceited person at this time. So 26 is a, is a transition verse that goes into chapter 6. Keep in mind, chapter verses and numbers are not divinely inspired. This was all one letter that would have been read together within the regions that are in this. And as we get into chapter 6, 
what, we, what we're going to find is we're going to find some spiritual ethics that are embedded in this letter, how we should live. But also we're going to see this theme of restoration. How do you restore somebody who has fallen from grace? How do you restore somebody who has exercised their Christian liberty and then been overcome by the sin that they were expressing that liberty in? They might say, I have the freedom to do this, but before they know it, then they got trapped because it really wasn't a freedom. It became sin for them within this. And how do you restore someone who has fallen? How do you restore someone who has fallen into the practices of the flesh? As Paul would say in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And there are times from time to time that we all sin, isn't it? Are there times when we all fall? Where we fall into whether it's lust or, or, or anger or, or wrath or some of these other things. How do you restore such a one that, that trips up into this fall? Well, we're going to learn that Paul says you act in a spirit of gentleness, not legalism. Chapter 6 is a contrast against the legalist. And that spiritual restoration really is returning a person back to the freedom that they have in Christ, being led by the Spirit, so that they can exercise their freedom in the Spirit of God and produce fruit. It's not about arrogance, and it's not about a demand of holiness. It's about a restoration. And, you know, the sad part about church today in many, many realms is Christians have a tendency to shoot their own wounded. We do. We, we get into a place where somebody falls and, and, or they sin, and we don't seek to restore them. We, we seek to tell them how bad they are. And that is not what Paul says here, and that's not what God calls us to do. In fact, the freedom that we really have to, to live that Spirit-led life is also a freedom that we have to serve others. Do you realize that God has given you the freedom to be a blessing to somebody else? To be that encouragement with them? And so we're going to pick up in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10, where Paul's writing these instructions, and he's going to give them some laws. And first one is the law of caring. If you take a look at this law of caring in verses 1 through 5, he says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing... He deceives himself, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. So the first law that we have is we have this law of caring, and, and, so, and it's in the law of Christ. Now, Paul is really good at making a play on words. Because the legalists were coming in with the law of circumcision, the dietary laws, and all of these different things. He says, you want laws? I'll give you a law. Here's the law. You're required to care for one another. You want a law to abide by? Let's see how you do. And, it's, and, he, and he frames it and he says, this is the law of Christ, verses 1 and 2. It's not Paul's law. 
It's the law of Christ. And we think about this. Paul opens this letter and he says, brothers. So, question. Who is Paul addressing? Christians or non-Christians? Christians. This is to us. Brothers. Brethren. Adelphoi. Those that are there. This is the law and it's the basis for what we would call congregational care. In other words, brothers and sisters caring for brothers and sisters. It's a mandate. It's a law. And it's the law of Christ. It's interesting, we take a look at this. He says, brethren, even if anyone who is caught in a trespass... And so you look at that if, and that if there is what's called a third-class condition... It's the class of potential. So it's not a guaranteed, but it's not a negative, but it's the potential. So if potentially a brother is caught in a sin within this, or taken in this trespass, that word trespass really is a, a, a violation of a law. So we have the protasis, that's the condition, and then we have the apodasis, which is the conclusion. So if... They're caught in sin. That's the, that's the condition. Then you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's the response. So if we find this condition present, potentially, then this is the right and really the only response. Restore such a one. That doesn't say, if you see a brother or sister in sin, put it on Facebook so everybody knows about it. I don't see that in there, do you? If you see a brother or sister caught in trespass, then start up a prayer circle and let everybody know how to pray for the fallen brother or sister. Is that in there? No. If anyone is caught in trespass, you, singular, are to seek to restore them. It's restorative. It's not punitive. Within this. And so the conclusion is spiritual restoration. You're to restore such a one. That word restore means to put them back in order. What does that imply? That implies that somewhere in their faith journey they got out of order. They got out of step. The idea is a cadence as you were marching. So if you were marching in military, right, you'd be in cadence. You'd be walking in step with one another. But what happens if you see someone that is, is caught in this trespass, this violation of law, this out of step? You're to restore that one back in order. And who is to do that? It says the spiritual one. The spiritual one. Does that make you pride and all puffed up? No. They got caught in the trespass because they stopped being led by the Spirit. Remember the context. Being led by the Spirit. So God is putting it upon your heart to be able to, to restore one in this spirit of gentleness. And I'll give you some Greek words because the, it's important to understand this, this word for gentleness is proutes. Proutes. It literally means to be meek. A, a way to remember it is, proutes is not proud. It's the exact opposite of being proud um, with that. And it's also interesting, that word caught literally means to be caught by surprise. 
it's in a passive tense, which means the fact that if you find somebody who is caught in a trespass and they were not intending to do it, but because they let their guard down, they got caught. You, who are led by the Spirit, with absolutely no pride at all or arrogance, be led by the Spirit to bring this one back in line with God. Because their sin has separated them and, and they're trapped or they're under bondage of their sin. It would be seen as a condition of what we would call today as backsliding. It's not somebody that, something that, that you intend to do. But because you let your guard down and, and you start compromising and you stop being led by the Spirit but led by your flesh and, and then you start giving in and here and you give in there, before you know it, you're like, wow, how did I get so far away from God? And wow, this behavior that I'm in has got me in a sense of bondage. How am I ever going to get back? The sad part about it is people that are caught in trespass really struggle to come back to the body of Christ. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people have struggled when they realize how far they've slid back into their old life, struggle to come back into the body of Christ? Guilt, condemnation, their sin is ever before them, and probably the greatest thing, they're scared to be judged. They're scared to be judged. How could I ever show my face in that place again? And Paul says, no. You spiritual ones, you that are led by the Spirit, if you become aware of someone caught in this, this bondage, you go to them and you seek to restore or bring them back in line with the spirit of gentleness. Within this, you know, we think about this, and, and the condition could happen for a number of reasons, but usually it's this. When you ask them, you say, well, how did you get here? And they go, I don't know. I really wasn't thinking about it. I don't know, I don't know how I got there. So being led by the Spirit, you go to the weaker brother or your sister, and you bring them back. Now, Paul... And, and hear me clearly, Paul is not creating two classes of people. He's not creating the upper class and the hyper-spiritual and the poor fallen souls that are down here. That's not what he's creating. But what he's saying is, is those of you that are led by the Spirit are to go and to walk in step with them. He's not empowering the legalists to come. But what he's doing is he's encouraging the stronger to support the weaker. And let's be honest. There are times in our spiritual journey that we are going to be spiritually strong. And there are times in our spiritual journey that we are going to be weak. Right? No one is ever on this continuing upward movement. We're going to have good times, we're going to have bad times. We're going to be doing good, and there's other times we're going to be struggling. But what a blessing it is to know that your brothers and your sisters have your back when you're struggling. And that you can go to them and say, hey, look it, 
I'm really struggling and I, I need some help finding my way back to get back in line. And to know you're not going to be judged. To know that you're not going to be finger wagged and pointed at in this. The, the, the spiritual is to go out to seek to encourage the weaker brother or sister in their weaker moments. Not in, not in an attitude. But, but really in love within this. Those that are walking in the fruit of the Spirit as we covered last week are to exercise the fruit of the Spirit towards the weaker brother. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, mercy, and self-control. You're to walk with them and restore such a one that's in that. As I said, this word restore is an interesting word. The word is katarizo. The word katarizo literally means to restore back to its former condition. It's used a couple of different ways in, in old Greek language. One, katarizo is used as a fishing term to repair nets. So if you were a fisherman and you went out and your nets were, and, and you had these nets and they went out and they had holes in them, and you had so many holes that you had to overhaul the net, you would katarizo the net. You would restore this this net full of holes back to it's better condition within that. It's also an interesting term because when cauterizo is used in reference to medical terms, it means, get this, to restore a broken bone and put it back in line. To take a bone that is out of place and to reset a break. You which are spiritual, cauterizo the ones. And... So then we think, okay, well, is there a place for that? Absolutely there is. Many of you are probably familiar with church discipline, as Jesus would, would teach it in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17 says this. If your brother sins, same third class, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Mind you, that's so the church can pray. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why? Because you've got to bring them back into this line of salvation. This cauterizo, as it applies to Matthew 18, is not punitive. It's always restorative. It's always to bring back in line. I have seen this church discipline used as a way to punish people. And it's not. And I would argue the fact that if it is the law of Christ, as Paul would say, and it is, when Jesus came, what did he come for? He came to seek and to save that which is lost. It's, it's always to be restored. In fact, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Note, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Even in turning out the brother that was having an immoral relationship with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5 says, I've turned him over to Satan. Why? Because I'm taking him away from the protection of the church. So he'll learn. So that he'll be restored. 
and, and the church of Corinth didn't want to do that. They thought that they were, you know, being all that and accepting this guy's sin, and they were actually hurting him. And all church discipline and all church restoration has to be led by the Spirit. Why? Because as human beings, we will get our flesh into it, and we will want justice, we will want to punish, we'll want to make an example, and we should never do that. It should always, always be Spirit-led within this, in gentleness, no self-righteous. That's why Paul says within this, look to yourselves in verse 1. Examine yourselves so that you too won't be tempted. Tempted to what? Tempted to be arrogant. Tempted to be self-righteous. Tempted to be full of yourself. Paul basically is saying, check yourself before you wreck yourself. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. I bet you didn't know that that was biblical. Check yourself. Because if you don't, you're going to wreck yourself. If you approach a situation and you don't check yourself in your attitude before you confront somebody, then you're going you're gonna to fall. And it's going to be hard. It's a temptation of pride. And pride comes before a fall. Spiritual pride is the worst kind of sin. When we get into this and we get into to being, or, or falling into that same sin. You know, and I hate to say it, but the reality is how many televangelists would preach against immorality and adultery only to find out later that's what they did? How many of these would preach against the love of money only to embezzle from their church and such things? We always should take a look at ourselves. And so you have to ask the question, why does Paul call it the law of Christ? Because it was the mission of Jesus to restore. To restore. Jesus came to restore you and I. Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And who was lost? Us. And He came in a spirit of meekness, gentleness within us. And He gives us the command, verses 3 to 5, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, but examine your own work, lest you have a reason for boasting to be in this and, and to come within this. One of the dangers that we have is self-sufficiency. We think we can do we can I can do it, I can do it by myself. I don't need to be transparent with anybody. Here's the difficulty. You can't do it. I don't need any help. Oh yeah, you do. But I can't admit that I need help. Why? Because it's weakness. It, 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 if it's weakness, and I don't want somebody to see you know, my weaknesses. I don't want somebody to see that I need help. So then what happens? You continue in your sin, your behavior, and all these other things. If you were to get up in the morning, catch your toe on the dresser, break your toe, stub your toe, what's going to happen to the rest of your body? 
It's going to crumple down to the ground. You're going to grab, your hand is going to grab your toe and go, ow, and you're going to be in pain. And then you're going to hobble around with a broken toe for about six weeks. Right? One toe, one little toe. Broken, one little broken toe has an effect on the whole body. Well, I'm not going to do anything about it. It's just my toe. My toe can figure it out on its own. Well, if you don't deal with it, it doesn't work. One part of the body becomes deficient. Then the whole body is impacted with that. How big is your heart in comparison to your body? What happens if your body, if your heart decides to shut down? You're done. You know, you, you, we think about these parts that we have. We are part of the body. And if one part of the body has become deficient and hurting, the rest of the body should rally around the hurting part and help build it up and bring it back in line. And, and we should bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That literally means to lift up. It's interesting because bear one another's burdens is, a, is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. He says bear one another's burdens. That's a command. Now I know a lot of people go, well, I don't want to get involved with their stuff. I don't want to get involved with their mess. You have a command to get involved with their mess. Well, I might get dirty. They can get dirty. Can you imagine a surgeon? I don't want to get my hands dirty. But the cancer is in there. But I don't want to get all bloody. Get the gloves on and get in and get it out. Take care of it. We need to encourage one another within this. We need to be able to bear one another's burdens. We need to put it in order. Martin Luther once said this, Christians should have broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and sisters. Your brothers' and sisters' problems are your problems. And it is your job and my job to be able to lift them up. The law of Christ is not a ceremonial law like circumcision. It's the response of the body. And Paul is warning them, this, this group of believers, these, these Christ followers, he's warning them to not neglect the ministry of restoration. To reach out to them, to one another. In the meantime, you should also not neglect your own spiritual well-being. What does that mean? You can get so caught up in trying to help other people that you neglect your own spiritual care and your own well-being within that. In the process of restoring the other person. And so within this, there's, there are some people that will gain their identity by running around helping other people. But if they don't take care of themselves spiritually, then they're going to run out of gas. They're going to fall into sin. Or they get their identity that way. Or become prideful. What do you do? I'm a spiritual lifesaver. Well, what do you do? Well, if anybody has a problem, I go to them. Yeah? What's the Lord taught you lately? Well, I haven't had time. I've been helping everybody else. And then before you know it, you fall. You should always, always, always practice self-care. And, and, and spiritual health is an imperative. And so he says in verse 3, after saying, bear one another's burdens, not to think of yourself as something, 
when he's nothing, or deceive yourself, but to examine your own work and, and within that. And you'll be able to carry that load. Notice how he says each one must examine his own work. He'll have reason for boasting and not regarding himself alone and not regard others. He'll bear his own load. Two different words for burden and load. Burden is the weight of the excess weight of something that is upon an individual that bears them down. Load is like your own backpack, like what you normally have to do. So you check yourself to make sure that you can manage your own load before you go help somebody else with their burden. Why? Because you're going to be lifting up some of the weight off of them and in addition to them, whatever the case may be. For example, what does it look like? It looks like you're not only your spiritual well-being, but your household. How's your house? How's your relationship with your spouse, with your children? How's your relationship with your work? How's your witness going? How's your, how's your self-care working? Because if you neglect that for the sake of somebody else, you're going to find yourself that you'll fall within that. And then there's two people that are down. One of the things as a, as a first responder that we very much practice. It's the rules of two. Two in, two out goes into a fire. If there's two going in, two are going out. But you always maintain what you need to do so that you don't become a victim in the process of trying to save somebody else. Always know your place, your stability, and be stable. Because now you might have one victim and you go in and you didn't pay attention to what you were doing and then now there's two that have to be saved within this. So you need to maintain that, that good spiritual health to carry your load but to help somebody else with their load. What does that really look like? Don't get overcommitted. If you're going to pray with somebody or meet somebody, make sure that you can, you can support them and encourage them. Don't be overloaded in your, in your, your own life. What does that mean? Leave margins. Leave margins in your life so that you have room to help other people. What happens if you expend your calendar all the way out and you don't have any extra time? And then you take on something else for somebody else. Well, then you're spent. So, what is your load? Don't ever go to capacity. Leave margins, leave room so that you can help brothers. Why? Because you're mandated to help people. To encourage them. Paul goes on and he changes his, his ethic to the next law, the law of Christ. But now he's in this next law, verse 6. It's a law in itself. And we would call this the law of receiving and giving. Look at verse 6. He says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches it. Well, what's he saying? Well, he's, now he's moved this and he says this is this law of giving and receiving. And, and within this, Paul is focusing on this ethic to honor those that are teaching and giving you instruction within this. Now, keep in mind, Paul is giving to this church these ethics of honoring those that are spiritually investing in your life. One of the things that this implies is, guess what? You should have somebody spiritually investing in your life. You should be under somebody that is pouring themselves into you, teaching you. Whether it's a pastor or a teacher or one that's discipling and you're giving them honor within this. Specifically, he says, the one who taught the word is to share 
all good things with the one who was teaching him. Let me be clear, though. Financial motive is never the reason to become a spiritual leader or a teacher within this. The whole purpose of, of, of being a spiritual leader or a teacher and investing yourself in other people is so that they will grow in the faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. You should never be a teacher, pastor, or any of these things with the principle of, of, of receiving them or receiving the honor with them. You, you are in that place where you go without expectation, but graciously receive what is offered to you. For example, Jesus told the disciples on their missions trip, in Matthew 10, 10 to 11, it says, A bag for your journey, and even two coats and sandals or a staff, and a worker is worthy of his support. Whatever city or village you enter in, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay in his house until you leave that day. In other words, when you get to a village on this mission trip, take, self, take your money. Take some money, a coat, and all these different things, and go and stay with people. Let them bless you. Let them provide a house and food for you. But stay in that one house and don't bounce from house to house. You know, in the Didache, one of the early teaching of the disciples, they said, one of the ways that you can know a false teacher is this. He doesn't stay in one house for very long. He gets into a city and then he upgrades. And he goes into one house and they greet him and say, oh, please come stay with us. And what's for dinner? We got burgers. Okay, great. And in the process of teaching, somebody says, well, come stay with us. We got prime rib. Oh, good. I'm going to leave the burgers and I'm going to go to the prime rib. And in the process of teaching, somebody says, well, come over to my house. We got filet. Oh, I'm going to do that. No. It's not about upgrading in these other things. But if you're serving the Lord and you're teaching, then it's okay to receive that honor. And Paul would even say that there would be a, a group of people that could make their living from preaching and teaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14 So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel, note, to get their living from the gospel. He would tell Timothy in establishing elders, 1 Timothy 5.18 From the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so, is it okay for a, a class of teachers, we call them pastors, to receive a wage in the process of, of teaching? Absolutely it is. There would be no way I could have a regular full-time job and spend the amount of time that I spend in, in sermon preparation and teaching. I spend about 16 hours in preparation for Sunday, and I spend about seven hours in preparation for Wednesday and then counseling and some of the other things. And so there would be no way that I'd be able to do it. Are there bivocational pastors? Yes, there are. There are, because the congregations they serve, they can't afford to pay a full-time pastoral salary, so they get a part-time job with that. Is it okay for them to get a part-time check? Yes. Whatever the case may be, if, if, is it okay for a pastor who's teaching in, in a rural church to get paid in chickens and eggs? Yes. Whatever the Lord provides in that, that's okay to receive. And the people that he's ministering to should provide for those things and show uh, gratitude and, and within that. I think it's important also to note that Paul says it's the, the teacher. The primary role of the pastor teacher is, guess what? Teach. The primary role of the pastor teacher is to teach. 
The primary role of the pastor-teacher is not to be your social worker, nor is he to be your activity director, nor is he to be the janitor. They're to teach, to instruct in the Word of God, because that's their giftedness. We know that to be true because in the early church it was challenged. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When the church was growing, it says, Now at this time the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, Spirit-led ministry, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Why? Because that's their role within the body of Christ. And so the office of the deacon was formed within that. And so the pastor has to have study time and, and preparation time and to leave that study time and preparation time to to do other things like setting up chairs or or, or mowing a yard or some of these other things or, or do administrative tasks, that takes away from the study time that you, that you need within this. Others in the body of Christ should step up and do that according to their giftedness. So if someone has the gift of hospitality... Should they show hospitality? Sure. How about gift of mercy? Yes. So what should they do? Go to hospitals, visit people. In the Western culture, it's become this commonplace where the congregation expects the pastor to do everything. The pastor can't do everything. He can't. It's impossible. You can't. I've I've yet to figure out how to be in multiple places at one time. I just can't do it. Within this, in most pastors. So the body of Christ has to step up and, and support the pastor and support the ministry so that the pastor can teach and study preparation. The other thing that's implied here that I want to be clear with, and, and he says to share all good things, the one who is taught is to share all good things with the one who teaches. The pastor is never to demand a plush lifestyle. Or become in love with money, or to work for a paycheck, and 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 within this say, well, I'm only going to do it for this, or I'm only going to do it for that. The pastor is a servant of God, and not a hireling. Anyone that looks at a pastorate as a job, counting hours, do that they're serving this way or that way. Anyone that looks at the pastorate or the one that teaches and is imparting the Word of God and discipling people, that looks at it at anything other than a lifestyle should get another job. And I know that's a harsh statement, but it's true. Ministry is a lifestyle. It is not just something that, that we punch a clock for. We do not. Pastorates and those that are teaching should never be a pastor for their own personal gain. I can tell you this. You, if you go into the pastorate and the, and the ministry, you will not get rich. At least if you're doing it right, you won't get rich. But if you enter the pastorate for what the pastorate or what the congregation is going to give to you, and you go at it with expectation, go get another job. And I see it, it's a bugaboo for me. 
because I see so many people that have to have the jet and they have to have the house and all these other things. I want to read to you a passage that declares this very clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. This is God's word declaring this. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This was the way they were supposed to do it. Thus they did it in Shiloh and the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificed, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw meat. And if the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you'll give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men displeased the offering of the Lord. Eli's sons, in the act of worship, were going through and saying, I want the best cut of meat before you boil it, before you do anything, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it. That is contrary to what Paul says here and what contrary to what Scripture says within this. Eli refused to rebuke his sons. They were self-centered and narcissistic. And as a result, they would die. Eli would lose his position. And Samuel would be raised up as a prophet to replace him. Ministry is not for your own personal gain. But... According to what Paul says here in this Christian ethic, you're not going to go hungry. It, it, it is the body serving together within this. And so the law of giving and the law of receiving was an ethic that the, the churches in Galatia needed to understand. They're not taken advantage of. You need to support those that are teaching. And those that are teaching should gladly receive whatever it is that's given to them. And be okay with that. The next law that he says is the law of sowing and reaping. Look at verses 10, 7 to 10. A different kind of law. He said, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit reaps eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this law of sowing and reaping. Now keep in mind, Paul's writing to what kind of a culture? Agrarian. They're all farmers. And, and, and as all farmers, he says, as you sow, you'll reap. Within this. There, there's an old proverb that says, you are what you eat. Right? <laughs> and, and so within this, it, it, it's a whole idea of what you take in affects your whole health. And, and so within this, Paul is saying this spiritual ethic, whatever you put your energy to, that's what you're going to get out. I can tell you this in your faith walk, in your journey, whatever you sow in your faith journey is what you get out. If you, if you sow... 10% of your heart to God, you're only going to get a 10% return. If you sow 100%, you're going to get a 100% return. 
within this. If you sow to your flesh, then you get corruption, as he says. If you sow to your spirit, you get the impacts and the blessings of that eternal life. And so what Paul is challenging is this. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What does he mean by that? Well, one commentator said this. God will not be snubbed when you turn your nose up at him. Within this, God was not mocked. And, and, and don't laugh at God. Do you think that you can laugh at God? <laughs> God, really? You think you're going to judge me? No. You don't get to do that. You don't get to go to God and say, God, you know, you, you really don't know what you're doing. I'm just going to do what I, mean, I want to do. No, you're going to get judged. You can't laugh at God. Proverbs chapter 1, 26, 27 says, I will also laugh at your God speaking to the sinner. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, those that mock God, you know what God's doing? Just wait. Ah, God, you'll never do anything about my sin. <laughs> Just wait. And when they cry out, God's going to go, yeah, you really didn't think I was going to do anything, did you? Imagine the people on the outside of the ark with Noah and his family on the inside. We never thought it was going to rain, a flood, or any of these other things. Really? Now who's laughing? Now who's mocking? There's a payday for sin. And the wage of sin is death. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. What is that word corruption? It literally means decay. The putrefying of a corpse. You sow to the flesh, then you reap a rotting corpse. For how long? For all eternity. You'll be in this rotting, decaying, corruption, composition. You sow to this flesh. Think about this flesh. Can you take this thing to heaven? Is this ever going to make it to heaven? Absolutely not. It's worm food. Unless you have it cremated and then in 30 seconds it does what 30 years would take. You can't, it's not going to go. So why do I want to nurture this thing that, that is just dying? But so many people do with, with the sex, the drugs, all the different things. And they think they can get away with it. Hosea 8, 7 says this, For they sow to the wind, they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain, should yield strangers and swallow it up. They sow to the wind. We look at our world today. Is the world today mocking God? Maybe a little? How's it going to be on the day of judgment? When God says, yeah, you were laughing at me. Now who's laughing? You're not. You'll be weeping and gnashing of your teeth. You sow to that flesh. So what's the option? Sow to the spiritual life. And reap eternal life. When does eternal life begin? The minute you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's eternal life. When you sow to the spiritual things... You reap the blessings of having that eternal life. Now, mind you, Paul is not saying you can add to your salvation. You can't. You cannot add anything to the cross. 
You cannot add anything. But what you can add to your life is spiritual joy, spiritual peace, spiritual patience, and, and experience kindness. So when you sow or spend yourself to the things that are spiritually led and the Spirit of God, then you have those joys. In John 3.36, it says, He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life already. He who does not believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we look at that, and that's that challenge. So Paul is saying, look it. You have your choice. So to the flesh, so to the Spirit. What's the Christian ethic? So to the Spirit. Why? Because to the extent that you sow to the spiritual things will be to the extent that you experience the power of eternal life right now. That peace that God has for you. And you'll see that. And you're not to quit. Not to give up. We need to understand that, that we are looking for one reward. Matthew twenty five twenty one. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few. I will put in your charge many things. Note, enter into the joy of the Master within this. Paul delivers these Christian ethics to them. And, and he brings them into this place of understanding that with whatever you spend your, your time on is what you get within this. Paul's conclusion is very brief. Here in verses 11 to 18, it's, it's just a conclusion statements, but he doesn't conclude like he normally does. He doesn't conclude with saying goodbye to people or recognizing people. He actually pokes the bear, so to speak, of these legalists. He says this. First of all, in his conclusion, he says, I wrote this letter. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing of the flesh try to compel you to circumcision simply so that they will not be persecuted on the cross. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. May it never be that I could boast in, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon Israel God. Now from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Your spirit. Amen. Paul ends this with this. In the end of the day, circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. What matters is the cross. I don't brag on the fact that I'm circumcised. You shouldn't brag that you obeyed the laws. What you should brag upon is the cross and what the cross does. And, and that blessing. Paul was writing in these large letters. He says, I wrote this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. He, he implies this again. He says, so just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I can't brag on anything in myself, my religion, or any of that. What I can brag on is that Jesus died for me. What I can brag on is that my sins are forgiven. What I can brag on is the fact that the cross has provided peace and mercy. 
If you don't hear anything else, hear this. It's not about what you do. It's all about what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, we get the blessing of being able to love others because we've been loved so much. We should stay away from legalism and live in the freedom and you have been given freedom to serve a loving God and to serve one another. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give to us this blessing, the blessing of peace and the blessing of presence. But it's only afforded to us by the cross. And we can boast in the fact that we have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and risen again with Christ. And it's not based on a religious act or any legalistic achievement that we've accomplished. Lord, You've given to us freedom. Freedom to live, freedom to love, and freedom to encourage one another. May we never get caught in sin. But if we do, may there be a brother or sister that will help us get out and encourage us. May we live lives led by your Spirit and in turn make you smile. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand if you're able to. And let's boast in the cross this evening through these songs. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the
Be magnified. That is 
Amen. Praise Jesus. Go and live the uh, life that we heard about tonight and the laws by Christ. And let Christ be magnified in your life the rest of this week. You're dismissed. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.